we are live. Hello there, gorgeous. My name is Abiola Abrams, and welcome to the very first edition of Spiritpreneur School. As you may or may not know, I have been broadcasting video and audio podcasts and TV and radio since 2005, but this is the first edition of Spiritpreneur School. So take a look at this gorgeous young lady who is here with me today. This is Joan Barnes. Welcome, Joan. Thank you, Abiola. Um, love to be called young lady. That is that, that sets up my day for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell them a little bit about you, Joan. The early 70s found this glamorous, gorgeous dancer here, Joan Barnes, en route from New York, where I am, to San Francisco in a Volkswagen camper with her then-husband and baby on the way. The young mom was far from the norm back in the days in free-spirited San Francisco ensconced in the summer of love, and Joan needed to connect with like-minded women. Enter Jimboree. Joan launched Jimboree, initially Kinder Gym, at a Jewish community center to allow moms and dads to as assemble while their toddlers play together. The business ultimately went public, yes, public and grew to a national brand that today boasts play centers in 32 countries and nearly 700 retail stores and three additional other brands. Now, her professional success did come at a, a personal cost, and, was, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but she also has other understandings of entrepreneurialism and life balance issues, and her so-called humble path, although I just look at her and I just see greatness shining all over her, I think is something that we can all learn from. So, Joan, that is quite a bio and a life story there. Thanks. Well, we all we all have our stories, and I think we become just a little bit more self-defined each time we tell our story, listen to another woman's story, or hear our story told about ourselves. And so, I'm just honored to be part of part of this day with you and and um, the maiden voyage of spirit entrepreneur. Spirit. Yeah. We say what you call. Yes, there is great power in storytelling. Actually, this is something like when I give talks that I work with people a lot on getting their story out. You, Joan, are originally a dancer from right. Illinois. Yes. Now, I have heard you describe yourself as a hippie. What <laughs> does that mean? Tell us more about your personal background, please. Yeah. Well, let's say um, I consider hippie at the, of the time more of a seeker. I was really curious about the world outside of the world I knew. I grew up in a in a liberal Jewish background, but very traditional. If you understand, I mean, liberal yes. in terms of um, politically liberal, but the way I was raised to to live was was it was in the traditional norm. So when I was then living with my yet to be husband in college, that was considered disruptive to use that word or, or radical at the time. And, yes. Um, he was then a writer at Time Magazine and I was luckily able to travel with him when I wasn't teaching dance and we went to, to discover the, the New South with um, Andy Young who I'm sure you know. Yes. And, um, and uh, Maynard Jackson and, wow. and some of the great black leaders of the time and I started to see a world outside of just what I'd read about in Time Magazine and I wanted to be part of that world. I wanted to be part of what was happening in San Francisco and I said let's go, let's go move to San Francisco. And he had been part of the Summer of Love in the late 60s and we decided to do something again not 
the way that people just go across country or have these bi-coastal lives today. But then it was a big deal. So we just picked up our life, got a Volkswagen camper, and go west, young woman, and wanted to be part of the, the world that was making change, which was pretty much happening in the, the, in the breadbasket of the west coast where I am now in the early 70s. So hippie, wow. I don't know, hippie is a big word, but I, when I think when people hear the word hippie, they think about uh, people, young people who are out to make change. Yes, I, I actually love the word hippie, um, although I was, you know, of course, way after that, but I, I love the word hippie. I use it now. <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a great word, and I think that's a beautiful definition, young people out to make change. Yeah. So when you left and you decided, okay, like you said, go west, young woman, go west, <laughs> did you envision becoming the mogul that you are? How did a play group for your daughters become the publicly traded Jimboree. Yeah, well, that, that, you know, you, that's a long story. In fact, um, just have finished a business memoir, which will be is getting published soon and will be out in, a, you, know, how, you know, how the publishing world works probably yes. about a year from now. So, you know, buy the book and you'll get the whole story. But, um, you know, in a, in, for the sake of our conversation today, you know, nothing is, you know, a straight, a straight arrow. Um, I had no vision of a big public company, let alone just as a little postscript, the public company is now has been taken private by Bain Capital for almost two billion dollars, and I don't even know what billion is. It went public, it went private in 2010. Bain Capital pulled it from the public markets for 1.8 billion dollars. Wow! You congratulations, Joan. Well, I just want to just say congratulations. I think, That's you wonderful. Know, I mean, this is, I mean, I launched the brand, I built the brand, I but it's you know had many many, um, you know, wonderful stewards, um, mm -hmm. which again is a little postscript, is what it's all about building a brand. We're building, we're building not personal legacies, we're building brands, which yes. means that all of us are dispensable, as we should be. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yes. um, I, I just wanted, as most entrepreneur stories um, would tell you, they come from a personal need, solving a problem for ourselves. And I had a problem. I had come to California to sort of be part of the changing world, but I was a young mom, smack in the middle of what they called the me generation. This was the lowest birth year ever. So oh, wow. I found myself isolated. What year was it? 1973. Okay. This was the lowest number of births, live births ever, ever, ever. And and so here I was, baby in hand, you know, miles away from Chicago where my family was or in my colleagues, my friends that I've had in New York. And I'm isolated. I'm lonely. No, every, nobody's interested in talking to kids. It's all about, you know, creating professional careers or doing what people are doing. And I wanted to find people who had made the life choice I had made. And so... You know, I'd come a little bit out of the consciousness raising group of the 60s where women had come together, but frankly, if I can use these words on your show, these were more yes. like what we call bitch sessions. Yes. Where they would complain about this and that. And this, I wasn't complaining. I actually loved being a new mom. I just wanted other people to share it with. I mean, certainly there were. My kid didn't come with a how-to manual. I don't think they do now either, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted comrades. I wanted side-bys to 
to celebrate the joys of what had happened, as well as people to discuss how, the how-tos of handling things. So um, I was lucky enough to get a job share at the Jewish Community Center with one of my fellow dancers. And you know the job shares were very unusual then. What is a job time. share? We had a, a full-time job, but I took half and she took half. Mm, okay. With the job, the whole job that paid ten thousand dollars a year, so I had a grand whopping five thousand dollars a year salary. <laughs> and I took the secular programming, meaning the non-Jewish related programming, and she took the programming that related to the Jewish culture. And it was there that I convinced the board of directors to give me a little bit of startup money to create what we then called Kinder Gym, which was the forerunner for Jimboree, mm. to to bring together moms, like-minded moms and dads and kids, and we would bring, we would develop some equipment, I scoured catalog, we had some built, but the underlying need was to bring people together who felt isolated and, and wanted companionship, and of course it'd be good for the kids, but we didn't want to, we didn't want it to feel like this was a problem we were solving. We wanted mm. to be an upbeat, playful, colorful, happy, happy environment, which it was. But ultimately, you're not going to come back unless it's solving a need for you, which it was right. doing. So we really, we really hit a nerve. And so one, one center became a second center. And then the then president of the board approached me about doing this as a business. I was naive as could be. I was like, sure, why not? What did you but, think that they meant when, when the president of the board came to you and said, and he hey, said why don't we make this a business? He said to me, he had had these, he had had these basketball camps and he'd sold them and he had a non-compete clause and he was looking around for a new business. He seemed like such a grown-up to me. He must have been all of 31 or 32. <laughs> and I was 27, maybe. And, but, you know, at that time, that's a big spread. Yes. And he said, I think this can be done commercially. You know, you've opened two for us here at the Jewish Community Center. They're both profitable and doing well. And I'll put up the money, and you do the work. And I thought, such a deal. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so we did, but I didn't want to jeopardize my job, you know, what right. if it didn't work? So we skipped, you know, 30, 40 miles away so it wouldn't compete with the centers that we had started in my hometown and opened up the first one 30 miles south of the San Francisco airport in a little town called San Mateo. Same thing happened. We had replicated the success. We got stories in the press. And then we opened up a second one down in San Jose, the nascent Silicon Valley. And, and these were, it, was it still named Kinder Gym or had it become Kinder Gym, Abiola, good question. But then I thought, wait a minute here. I'm doing all the work. I'm making it happen. This guy's just sitting back. <laughs> what if I buy him out? You know, he'd put up $3,000. What would be a good deal for him? I thought, what if I double his money? and give him $6,000. So I take out a second mortgage on the house. I don't consult the husband because what if he says no? Right. You know? So, you know, what's $6,000, right? So <laughs> mortgage on the house, and I buy the guy out. Wow. And then I subsequently start opening another center along the peninsula from San Francisco to the Silicon Valley every six months until I have about eight. And somewhere in there, I think, I've got a real business here. 
So yeah. I leave my job at the Jewish Community Center. Oh, I have another baby somewhere in there too. <laughs> so now I think, okay, I got a real business. I don't need my $5,000 a year job. And I've got eight locations and two kids. Then people start coming to me who were parents, moms in the program and saying, we love this. We want a center of our own. Can we buy a franchise? Franchise. I think, what is a franchise? <laughs> is it McDonald's a franchise? I mean, I'm hopeless, clueless. Did you go to the library in between and do research, or did you have a friend who was a lawyer? Or? This was all before the franchise industry. This is like, really, this is a lesson, in this is a historical lesson. I don't mean to be like what coffee was a nickel, but kind of. This was... This was, franchises are now very regulated industry, but this was when people were getting ripped off and being sold like earthworm farms and airports and things like that. So I was naive enough to think, oh, in order to franchise, you have to fill out these paperwork. And I go down to the Federal Trade Commission, I get the paperwork, I fill it out, I become Joan Barnes doing business as Kinder Jim as a franchisor. I don't know the first thing about being a corporation, so I can't get sued. I'm just so naive. So I'm probably the first and probably the only person that was franchising as a as an individual, not as a corporation. It worked for a while. I sold out the whole Bay Area until we got a letter back that said that Kinder Jim, the name we were operating under, was generic. Now that means they weren't going to give us. No, it's a business. You are only as good as your name and your ability to protect it. The first problem in a slew of problems, like every entrepreneur on the way to success has. I thought, oh my God, I've got five years or whatever plus of my own business name recognition. I've sold franchises. There's eight or nine franchises operating under this name. What are we going to do? Wow. And so now you had to come up with a new name. New name. And you uh, lose your, your brand equity that you've had for absolutely, all Absolutely, Abiola. And I think, oh my gosh, this, we're, we, won't, we won't be able to continue. You know. So we find, we come, my, my then husband comes up with a new name. You know, we, we have scraps of paper all over the kitchen, and all of a sudden one day, you know, before there's cell phones, I get a call from him jogging along the Embarcadero in San Francisco from a payphone, <laughs> breathlessly going, Jim Murray, Jim Murray, and I go, that's it. So I call some trademark attorney, I try to get it fast-tracked, we do mall intercepts, and we hold this name up in front of parents as they're leaving the mall, what does this name mean to you, How does it, what do you think, and they go, oh, it's so upbeat, it has something to do with kids, I'm not sure what, but it's... You know, it's it's just so friendly and so forth and so on. Fast forward, we get that name trademarked. Wow, wait, I just wanted to stop you there, Joan, because I want to point out some great things in your story so far for our spiritpreneurs, our business bombshells who are watching. <laughs> you did market research. You didn't necessarily have to get people in a room. You took your word, you went to the mall, and you said, hey, what do you think of when you see this word in order to be able to test and see how the brand was going? Not one nickel of market research. We didn't have any nickels, <laughs> Aviola, to spend on fancy market research. <laughs> you also... 
fulfill the need that you know you were your target demographic. You wanted friends. You wanted you know a positive environment. You wanted to be with your kids and have fun. And so one of the things that I talk to women about a lot, because unfortunately a lot of young women feel like they're lonely when they are entrepreneurs, when they're wanting to build a business. And so that's a big part of me wanting to do this and bringing us together. You created a means for you to get together with positive, like-minded people. Right. And then you weren't afraid to say yes just because you maybe didn't necessarily know something, you know, have all of the answers right away. If it, if it sounded like it was going in your direction and you did, you know, you consulted your, uh, your partner at that time, your husband, and if you were able to make it work for you mentally, it sounds like you then moved ahead. Right. That's it. Well, wow. Okay, so a big question that I have then, Joan, is that a lot of people, you know, I work with women one-on-one -on -one and speak to groups, and one of the things that I've noticed is that when they see someone like you and your fully evolved self, and they're looking at, you know, the story halfway through rather than the story while you were in it, they think, oh, well, that person just had it easy, you know, or, or that person, you know, she, she, she just had it easy. But you had naysayers all along the way, starting with your own family, people who thought maybe you were crazy. What encouraged you to keep going, and were you always, you just strike me as just this firecracker of a personality that's like, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. So how did you deal with naysayers? What encouraged you to keep going, like when you got this letter, for example, and how did you deal with all of that? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of that, those are really very provocative questions, and I think a lot of us have to really um, investigate um, our character, what drives us, and I'm not so proud necessarily, it's not so much in the early days, but in the later days of how I dealt with my internal naysayers, but in the early days I was just so excited about the concept and the feeling of the customers and the clients and the kids, I knew that we were on to something. So something like having to change the name as much as it was frightening and all that stuff, I, I really thought we could get through that sort of thing. Then when I realized that we had to grow purposely or stop growing when, when we started moving the, the business outside of the Bay Area, I realized we needed, we needed money and we needed talent. So um, I was able to go out and, and um, recruit people who had franchising experience, recruit venture capital, and um, to, to launch a national, pro, a national program and, get, and start to grow more responsibly, put together a business plan. Where the naysaying started to come in was starting to feel now, ironically, by having created this, this family situation to find like-minded parents for others and for myself, I was now becoming isolated from those people because I was starting to be one of the few people who, one of those women who was sort of the pioneer in the women's movement, if you will, of being able to make it out in the world. And so I was becoming kind of like the piranha woman when I would go to the soccer games on Saturday and the, the stay-at-home moms would be like pointing at me like, that's Joan Barnes, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I started to feel um, lonely again. Mm -hmm. And like the more, quote, success or desire I had to create more success or get bigger and make my, my concept grow, the more I realized the trade-offs of what I was going to endure in terms of being a part of my community, a part of the, the mom community. 
Yes. Same. So I had this duality inside of me, wanting to belong, but also having this huge desire to want to see through my professional ambition. Mm. That's that's such a powerful answer because I think that you know, of course, I've I've studied you know first and second and third wave feminism, and we don't have these conversations, these intergenerational conversations. I think enough about this that my I'm I'm the same age as your children, I'm and. Sorry. I remember being in school and I had a working mom and honestly like feeling like there there was something weird that because you know my mother couldn't come to school all day and participate in these things and you know so when I I look back at that and I talk to her about it now she did have like a lot of guilt and a lot of like internal struggle about that and about you know the idea of of you know what it is that you want to do, maintaining your own vision and then your community and the people around you and all of those things. Right. Well, my kids, um, who I think actually, I think you're actually younger than my kids, but all in the same, in the same, you know, general time frame. You know, what I've come to know about kids is that they pretty much normalize their their situation. Yes. That they have is what they have. They don't really think, oh, I'm different than the other kids, unless you know it's significantly troublesome. But you know, my kids were, you know, they were tremendously loved and, you know, they had, they had, we had somebody living with them that helped care for them and I was home in the evenings and things like that, but I know I was not at the parades and I barely knew the situations, you know, <laughs> I was a mom, you know, yeah. uh, and they were proud, there was, a, you know, they had the same duality that I had, they were proud of what I was accomplishing, you know, mom's on television and we get to go to mom's office and play office and things like that. Yes. But, you know, and they are now struggling with their own trade-offs, you know what I mean, it, it, as every woman does. Between as every woman does, every yes. Every woman does in this elusive search for balance, whether you have children or you don't have children, how do you balance all of the plethora of life choices, you know. So yes. it was all of that. So that's on the personal side. On the business side, as the business grew and I realized that I'd gotten funding and years into it, three, four years into it, I realized this beautiful franchise play program that was now, you know, raised a couple million dollars, which was not nothing in the early 80s, and we had, you know, 50 to 100 sites, was not going to be, was not going to manifest the return on investors, the return on investment that we had promised the investors. Mm. We, had, we had a flawed business, essentially. Not that we couldn't carry on indefinitely paying our payroll, you know, having a nice little family business, but you know what? Right. Investors were never going to see any return, let alone their money back. They're kind of worst, kind of their worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely. They write you down, you know, take a write-off on you and move on. You with me? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm wondering how you dealt with that. And well, so that, there's where there's where I was I was um, you know unwilling to hear um, die. Yeah. No surrender in me. Now is that my character? Is that um, my inability to let down the investors? Is it my dogged? You know, is that is it my good qualities? Is it not? Assessing what other the other things that are valuable in my life, you know, how many hours we got here, Abiola? You know, what I, mean? <laughs> you know these, these I think are, that it's a part of all of that. I think that it certainly begins with your character. You know, with you already having um, this kind of 
okay, here's what I'm going to do. This I am not going to let those investors down. I would. I, right. I didn't have any. It's not like I. I had my own um, skin in the game in terms of I didn't want to fail. To right. Me, business failure and personal failure were, you know, were intertwined. If the business went down, I felt like I failed. Even though I didn't have any money in the business except the original six thousand dollars, well, you I, had sweat equity. You had your brand. You had your name. I had my sense of self. Mm. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense to me. I completely get it, and that's why I say to people all the time that entrepreneurship is not for the weak of heart, not it's for the not, faint of heart. The faint of heart. Now, so we're a special breed here, we entrepreneurs, and you know, you kind of, you know, it, um, um, Tony Shea um, from, from Zappos writes in his book, you know, you're going to kind of know whether you're an entrepreneur by the time you're 15. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I, mean, I had the best lemonade stands. I had all kinds of entrepreneurial businesses by the time I was seven. You know, I just really like creating stuff. You know, yeah. I like yeah. doing my own yeah. thing. I, I'm just a lousy. I'm a lousy employee. I'm too curious about all at all. What's, what are you doing in that office and in that office? You know what I mean? I just and I like to hire good people and I like to let them rip. And I'm just I'm just a good I'm just a good person to. Um, inspire other people. Everybody that worked for me was way better than I was. You know, I'm not afraid of hiring people more talented than me. I love it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do and I can see it in your personality and actually before we go to the next question, I was wondering did you from the beginning create okay this is the um, well it was Kinder Gym at that time but this is our our branded system and as you were creating this franchise system from scratch or even going off and starting your own additional stores before that, did you have a system in place that you taught the person that was running it so that there was some sort of uniformity or? Well, you know, that's interesting because Jim Bree as a play program is, was a little bit of art and a little bit of science, you know what I mean? Because it, it, it carried the the person out, the, the, the person who ran the classes had to bring themselves to the classes. Yes, we said, okay, the equipment's going to be set up this way, these are the songs to sing and so forth, but you had to be you, which was the beautiful part of the art. One of the things that we did was that any of the management team had veto power. So when we brought on a new franchisee, it was like, we were like polygamous. You know, we had several hundred marriages because that's what it was when you take on a franchisee you're taking on a marriage partner and we're only as good as our franchise we're this our successes at that point was the sum successes of our franchisees before we got into the retail stores you know a potential franchisee did you know would like to meet us but essentially they want to talk to the other franchisees how are you right. doing are you successful is the company behind you do they treat you well do they do they support you do they do what they say they're going to do so Blah blah blah. So when they came out, when a franchisee came out to 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 be interviewed on their own nickel by the staff and spend a day with us, anybody on our staff that got a bad vibe, if you will, if that's not too California for you, I'm there with you, <laughs> didn't feel that this, you know, that there wasn't that something wasn't quite kosher here, that we yeah. this would not going to work out. We would just we would just bow to that. Okay. We won't go forward. No matter how poor our cash flow was, how very much we could use that check at this moment, we wouldn't go forward. And it served us well. 
That is so important. So we never important. had any lawsuits. We worked well with all our franchises. We never had those things you read about in all those business mag those entrepreneur magazines about yes. squabbles between the franchisee and the franchisor. That didn't happen to us because we were very diligent about choosing our relationships. You set an intuitive culture from the top down to yeah. trust yourselves and uh, it was all women, Abiola. Yeah, men around. We kept enough men around to keep the evil opportunities people away. But I love working with women because so we, do I. I just love it because we because we operate intuitively. We're collaborative. We don't get our ego in the way. We can drift off in a conversation and come right back to point. We don't think, oh, I don't do that. If we got to collate material for a meeting, no problem. If we got to put on our big marketing hat, no problem. We can do it all. Yes, I I fully agree, and it it distresses me when I hear people say things to the contrary. Like that, there was a point where I admit I hired only women, and it's because I came from a primarily female-centered education. I grew up seeing you know incredible women, and I felt like you that you know we just worked better you know together in a sort of simpatico sort there of way. You go. That any time that I've hired someone or, you know, worked with someone who my gut told me, uh, this person, I feel something funky, but it's a great opportunity, so I should do it, I've regretted it. So now I go. know to trust my intuition. Yep, there you go. Intuition. And, you know, we sort of downplay the importance of intuition. But, see, to me, entrepreneurialism is is mainly intuition. You support it with research, but it is what separates the, the entrepreneurs from the business people. Yes. And, 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 you know, I'm not a business person. People say, you're such a good business person. I said, no, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a terrible business person, actually, <laughs> because I can only do what I see the vision for, which is entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I, can only, yes. I, get a, I get a spark. I get an illumination. And then I, have, I trust my ability to sort of, you know, find the breadcrumbs to get to where I need to go. I love that. I love it. Beautiful. Beautiful. I can't wait to read your book. Okay, let's let's talk about abundance and prosperity. Okay. I read in my research about you, Joan, that in those early days, and even now I'm sure, that people have a rough time saying no to you. Many women in business have, have challenges in asking for money or asking for help um, or asking for the sale. What is the initial experience of raising money, and how do you reconcile abundance with spirituality and all of those issues, some of those issues that we have? Well, let me, I mean, there's, there's several threads I hear in the question, so yes. if I could parse them out. Um, let me just say that making money, per se, was never a goal of mine, never was, and still does, remains not. To me, it's always been about doing something that gives me purpose, yes. gets me jazz, gives me juice, and that I feel excited to wake up to do every day. And and sort of um, as one of my mentors said to me, do what you love, and the money will follow, or it won't. Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. least you'll be doing what you love. And so, you know, but raising money, I wasn't raising money for me. I'm not a GoFundMe camp. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, you know, this was long before any of those fun, those Indiegogo, GoFundMe things even existed. But raising money for the brand and building the brand, that actually came easy to me because I believed in what we were doing. And I saw the, 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 the need and the, 
um, success we were having is that we were filling a purpose. We were filling a need. The, the Gymboree program, the play program, sold itself. People came, they re-upped. We didn't have to come up with clever marketing gimmicks to bring them back. Or, and we did all of that. But essentially, it, you know, one of the great anecdotes that I love to tell is that people would tell us how on non-Gymboree play days, your class days, they would have to take a different route on their, you know, where they going to the grocery <laughs> store because the kids, even age 18 months, would start jumping up and down in their places, in their in their little play, in their car seats because they thought they, they could recognize the, the route and yes. thought we were going to the Jimbery class, wow. and they were disappointed when the if we drove by the building. Now, how sweet is that? That's beautiful. That's so that beautiful. kind of says it all. So. You know, yes, the parents sign up, but if they didn't feel that they were getting something out of it, if it didn't fit their need, if they weren't making friendships that still last 20, 30 years later, and their kids weren't excited to be there, they wouldn't come. So for to go and, and try to raise money for something that has innate value, I'm kind of a sucker for service businesses. I mean, I know the Internet and all these things, but something where you walk in one way, and, and walk out another way that you're viscerally changed by the experience. Transformational business. Transformational. That's why I'm the same thing with my yoga business. It just, you know, something happens to you viscerally, somatically, by being in the company of other people, by being in the company of yourself, by actually being being with your kids, takes taking the time not to be distracted. Even if even if you could do all those same things at home, it's different doing them with other people. Just like I can yes. practice yoga by myself, but being in the sangha of other people all committed to practice together that day, it's just it's 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 kind of indescribable. So raising money to build more of that situation felt easy for me. And I guess I'm persuasive. <laughs> I'm <not open. laughs> <laughs> and also, there's a little bit of the penguin theory. You know, as soon as one of those VCs decides they want it, all of a sudden everybody wants in. <laughs> they all sit on the sidelines, kind of checking it out. And somebody says, "Yes, I think it's a great idea. I'd like to be in." Next thing you know, the phone's ringing off the hook. I think I'd like a piece. I'd like a piece. I'd like a piece. You know, there's a lot of me twos out there. <laughs> yes, yes, very exciting, very exciting. And did you ever have, even though you didn't initially set out to make money, did you ever have that sense of, you know, people thinking, well, money is unspiritual? Or it sounds like, like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that I talk about is if you come from a place of service, then you're excited to, you know, to to make it an abundant situation because you want to serve the community or the people or the group that you're well, serving. I don't, I, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it, Abiola. I guess what I would say is that I like uh, what I've said about the yoga business because people mm -hmm. be like, you know, that's a spiritual thing. You're going to try to make money. And I said, I would like to make, take the best of the spiritual and the best of the material worlds and blend them. I don't, I don't have a problem with, with making something that's really a beautiful service, in my case it's these two businesses, one that these mm -hmm. parents and kids, I don't see why they have to be, um, they don't have to work in the, in the, in the, the price of being in business, of staying in business is to make money. You can't stay in business. It's not going to be, it's not going to work long term for you 
or anybody or your investors if it's not profitable. It just isn't. It just, it just isn't, right. It's the difference between a business and a hobby. Exactly. So it might be fun for a while, but even the most altruistic of us is going to forget. It's going to get old after a while. It is. Yes. And so in my case, when 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 Jim Marie did go public, and I you know I found myself with a few nickels in my pocket that I never thought I would have, it afforded me to you know start a nonprofit for food, for women with food, weight, and body images called Begin with Men because that was my own struggle and. You know, it afforded me a chance to, you know, give money to other philanthropic causes that meant something to me. It helped me get fund a college funds for my grandkids that I hope they'll get to get, get, get to go to colleges of their choice someday. You know, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm able to do things that um, are good things. I don't live an opulent. I don't live much differently than I would ever have lived, frankly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a big consumer. Um, I look for purpose and meaning in my life, you know. Um, the things that have always been important to me, nature, connection, relationship, they still remain important to me. I don't know if that's helpful. That's helpful and inspiring as well. That the podcast, as you know, is named Spiritpreneur School. Right. As you mentioned, <laughs> thank you that you are a yogini, a mind, body, and spirit practitioner. What do what role do the core values of being a yogi or yogini, such as you know holistic with a W, um, awareness play for Joan as the business bombshell? Oh, that's such a sweet question. Um, you know, um, my yoga practice is a commitment um, I make to myself every day to take my measure, if you will, to take my internal temperature. Um, to be um, honestly engaged with the the um, where I stand, where you know, to, to where I believe, to what's important to me, because um, we know we're a living, breathing force. Particularly as women, we're connected to the earth. And when I get on my mat, I kind of just relax. I feel like I'm home to myself. And in that practice, um, I find that there is infinite wisdom in the body. That the body is, is, you know, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it is my temple. It speaks it to me. I find out where I really stand on complex issues. I mean, I don't think about them, but in, in, the, in the wisdom of the asanas comes answers out of nowhere. And it's a place for me to watch my, watch my um, tendencies, to watch my complexities, to commit to being around the same kind of community of people who are doing the same for themselves. And it's an important um, hour to two hours of my day to um, be of service because it's sort of like heal yourself, heal the planet. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I so respect you for, you know, respect you sharing that with us, that I also had struggles around body image issues and disordered eating, and I feel that, you know, getting into my body and being able to be present, as you so beautifully described, has been an important part of my healing, and I think that that is, that's beautiful that you share that. Before I found yoga some 20 plus years ago, I mean I tried it over the years before that, I thought it was 
silliest thing in the world. I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought, what are you talking about? I, I do aerobics every day. I teach aerobics at the at the Jimboree. I'm a competitive mountain biker. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a dogged hiker. You know, um, but all of these things were very yang. You know, I didn't really, I never really understood what it meant to be um, softly connected to myself. And, and, and as we well know, those of us who practice yoga, there's nothing easy about the yoga practice when you're really in the yoga practice. Yeah. Um, so I've just um, understood that, that that connection, that softer place, that gentler place, is all connected to a sense of self-loving, um, self-understanding, um, compassion, all the higher purposes of, you know, tried and true spiritual values, which I'm a little bit hesitant to say I'm a spiritual person, but I'm I'm a person that believes that we need to all find that place that makes us um, aligned with the highest place we can be, the highest the highest calling we want to be aligned with. Beautiful. Thank you. I One of my personal goals, uh, not with my business at all, but one of my personal goals is this year to get my yoga certification just for me. And you're so inspiring me. And so thank you. Thank you for that. And when I come to New York, we'll share a yoga class together. Promise Yes, we will. Yes, we will. And see, the little gremlin in my head said, oh, my gosh, but Joan's been a yogi for 40-plus years. So, But, of course. No, 22 years. 22 years. But you 22 know what? years. But we are is not a competitive sport. Right, with anyone else. So I look forward to that. I'm excited about that. Me too. And when one of my teachers says to me, yoga is a breathing exercise, not a competitive sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited about that. Yay! <laughs> How did you, Joan, balance? Uh, was, it, was it yoga that was helpful for you when things were falling apart personally that you've been very upfront in your bio about the demise of your marriage, about disordered eating? How did you balance all of that with no, all these huge I, I, business yoga, things? Yoga came afterwards when I was overextended in Jimboree and I knew I was in over my head and it was time to let go of all of these committed you know, family who basically stood by me and the company all through um, our growth and, and as companies build, as you can well imagine, you need different talent at different times and I had to I had to actually part ways, you know, let go of the people who'd been there from the beginning. I knew it was probably my time too. It was time to for me to go, but that's not how my board saw it or the press saw it and I was very conflicted with all this and I was giving so much to the company I had nothing left for my marriage or very little for my children either and I was completely off balance and I had no balancing efforts at all I, my eating disorder was completely out of control my and as part of my eating disorder came my exercise addiction and I was I had no balance whatsoever until literally I, I had a crash and burn so when I left Jimboree it looked like to the world and all of this is depicted in my book. Um, it looked like an orderly transition, you know. Entrepreneur leaves, you know. Season management comes in, which is, you know, not unusual at all. But in my case, it wasn't that at all. I literally had, um, you know, probably what would be clinically called a nervous breakdown. But I went to a, a treatment center, which I thought was going to be for 30 days, and ended up being gone for three years. 
lived in a for, treatment for center. For how long? For three years? I was gone for three years, mm -hmm. but I lived in a treatment center for over a year. Mm. And what was the what was the biggest part of the treatment that was most helpful for you, if you don't mind sharing? No, I'm happy to share. It was was basically unlike other addictive behaviors, you can put the plug in the jug or stay away right. from the drugs. But we have yeah. to eat. We have to eat. And we have to carve out a new relationship with food. So, um, you know, that's not something you do in 30 days. Right. You know, in, in most of us, even quote healthy people, you still think about food as a way of like, what do I feel like eating? Yeah, Ooh, that sounds like it would be great. You know, I feel like something soothing. I think I'll have ice cream, or I feel like something crunchy. I'm gonna can't get rid of my, you know. But for those of us who have food, weight, and body image issues, food has to be fuel. Yes. We've lost the privilege of thinking about what it feels like. So you know, for a couple of years. I would just write down the food the night before that I was going to eat and look at my little menu the next day and commit to it. I food still do that. I still do that. that. So food was fuel. It was just about, about getting the proper amount of fuel and not thinking about it as anything but that. I didn't go to a restaurant for a couple of years and I started to really think about how I was feeling unrelated to food as being any salt, any, you know, as a reward, as a punishment, as a, as a companion, any of those things. So little by little, food had its had a place in my life, very separate from anything but fuel, as I as yes. I repeated. Um, and so I learned. They told me in treatment, "We're going to love you until you could love yourself." Now, I, you know, these all sound like platitudes because yeah, I, I thought I loved myself. You know, when I did well and accomplished well, and people, I got big press. Well, I was I was cool, you know, but that was not the kind of self-love I've learned is really self-love, where I really know that I'm in alignment, I stand where I stand, um, I can learn how to disappoint if it's the right thing to do because it's mm -hmm. I need to be, and I'm not so worried about people pleasing, or even people pleasing the investors. If it's, if it's time for me to move on, I will move on. So you know, so even recommendations to other you know entrepreneurs is like you got to check yourself is the next growth phase something that's really right for you now that's those those are not small questions those are not something you're going to figure out over lunch today you know what I mean so um, this was so I realized that it, the reason I needed to be gone so long is I was really planting new shoots I was rebirthing myself so to speak not in the not in that kind of weird way, but I was really having to plant new roots about how I was re looking at life and how I was going to want to lead my life going forward. And I did. And I'm really grateful for being dashed to the rocks, believe it or not. Yes, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. You know, I got, I've, I'm living a whole second life now as a result of that. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to I'll, afterward. I'll, I'm going to send you a copy of my book where I talk a lot about my journey, which has so many parallels. And I know you said that the online space is new for you, but maybe in the future we'll do a program together for women around this because I'm very passionate about. I would love this. that, Abiola. I feel yes. I feel very connected, even though through this through this through this Ethernet or whatever we're doing here. <laughs> Our Google Hangout. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. Okay, good, good. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Okay. All right. So <laughs> let's talk, Joan, about fear. That you talked about fear of letting down the investors or fear of moving forward or moving on. You know, while we're human and we're alive, we have fear. But for a lot of people, that fear is very crippling. That a lot of people have anxiety or you know depression or you know all of the ways that fear manifests but you know imposter syndrome people pleasing right. what do you do personally when you become anxious or afraid now right that's thank you for that question um, uh, I know the imposter syndrome very well I felt like a fraud m much of my life what I first do is I thank fear for being here I thank it very much. First of all, it connects me to my humanity. It makes me feel very human because it's such a natural human emotion. It's just, it's just like uh, um, anger. Um, fear is a protector. It tells me something is um, something's not right. Um, you know, something in my world f feels like it's invading, and I need to um, reassess so that I can get myself back to feeling. Uh, safe and comfortable and centered. So I ask myself, I, I thank fear for being here. I thank myself for being able to identify that something is up, that I feel um, somehow that, that um, my boundaries are being invaded. And then I try to ask what it is you want from me, fear. What is it that you want me to consider? And I this is part of that self-love. I've learned to, I've learned to, um, I've learned to manifest this this thing called me, which listens to all those other things in there, those voices that one part of me thinks this and another this, and the fears here and all those complexities. But I try to hold the me in there is the great arbiter, the great mediator, the great listener, the way I can be to a friend or to a partner. I try to do that to all those other things inside of me because I can't really ask you or you or you because you're going to come from what's going on for you, not right. what's going on for me. You know, so this is a very in, in, inside job, if you will. So I ask the fear what it wants, what it, what it wants for me, and typically what it wants is it wants to ask the other people inside of me. It, it, it wants it telling me that other people inside of me have a perspective on what it is that's, that's, that I'm, the, the, the dilemma is, and I'm not listening to everybody. I haven't given them a good audience. I haven't said to this part of me, tell me what you think about this. I haven't been, I haven't been a good listener to all of the dynamics that work inside of me because when I do, I start to settle down. I don't have to act on any of it, but I do need to know what everybody inside of me is thinking. With me? Yes, I'm. I'm just. I'm so feeling it. Yes, I love when you know that that those are are very. I love when I'm having a great conversation with someone and they give actionable advice. Right. And so those are that. That's an incredible healing modality that you just shared. It's, it's, and it's something I'm really developing. I'm hoping to um, maybe we'll do this someday together, or you'll mm -hmm. come. You'll come with. I'm hoping I'm starting to develop some retreats where we actually work with the with our own individual archetypes that live inside of us. Sometimes we might oh have. Oh my gosh, that is. 
I have a I have a notebook here that is all about all about that because that's really? one of my objectives for this year is working oh, with the shadow process and the archetypes of sorry, go ahead. No, no, well because you know it used to be that we all knew about the Greek archetypes inside of ourselves. Diana, Hestia, we could sort of identify, oh I'm more this one, I'm more that one. But you know, none of us are that erudite anymore. We can right. you know, we know about Kim Kardashian or this one or that one. <laughs> but but we do know about some of the archetypes, whether like when we were talking earlier about the, the you know, the, the Earth Mother or the, mm -hmm. you know, the the kind of what I cut to refer to as the Lean In Lori, sort of the corporate one who wants to, you know, that some of us really revel in being one of those ladies, you know. But none of us just have one. Many of us have five or six or seven that are driving us or working us or have have you know have a have a hold on us at different points in our day or life. And we need to understand those people and where they come from and respect them because they all make up, I call them like a little bit like Russian dolls. You know, we're yes. all living inside of us and we, they're our best friends, man, not our best friends there. So I think that fear comes from not um, acknowledging them and asking them how they feel about whether or not, you know, the next movement that we're considering is a good idea. That's exactly it. Yes, yes. And so we we spend so much of our our time in our culture with trying to numb or avoid or you know dumb down. Okay, this yes. is what I'm doing. I'm not listening to you. I'm. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. Oh, I look forward to what so and so told me to do, and they've they've been successful. And this is what they told me to do. That's what I'm doing. But I'm scared, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm thinking, well, Yes, 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 yes. Oh, sister, you are a powerful woman. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, Sit tight you're not scared. Sit tight until you're not scared. Yes, yes. And just become in, get in alignment with you. You know, um, you had asked me, um, maybe I'm preempting you, but you had asked me about a, a piece of advice that I'd gotten that really mm -hmm. had worked for me. And this it really dovetails well in here because. Um, when um, you know, we won't get into all of this, but I had a I had a, a fortunate chance at a beautiful second marriage, but that husband got very sick very early, and I was um, really struggling with how to handle it. I just didn't, you know, everybody has something that lands at their gate that they wish they could send back and say, I can't handle this, and this was this was one of those for me, and I realized. I'm handling it because it's here and I'm going to have to handle it. But I went to see a number of, quote, spiritual teachers, even a rabbi, I'm Jewish, I went to a Hindu, I went to a Buddhist, you know, and asking them what the traditions would tell me to do in this situation about this very ill man and how to handle it. And the best piece of advice I got, not just about this situation, but was from this Buddhist teacher, very renowned Buddhist teacher, and he said to me, Joan, you are going to have the rare opportunity to line up to your own value system. Mm. Because one day, you will know what to do. Everything will come together, and when you do, and you make a decision in this case about what to do with this husband of yours, whether to place him in a care facility or try to sacrifice your life for him, it won't matter what your children think, or his children think, or the community thinks, or any number of different outside forces, because you'll be so clear, it will be right. I'm thinking, 
waiting. That day will come, and I'll be that comfortable in my decision. And it did come. It took about a year and a half or two years. And now I have waited for that day to come in most decisions I make. And it has come from the idea of listening to everybody inside, waiting for them all to feel heard, giving, waiting for them to synthesize. And me as the little internal CEO, just giving everybody a chance to come together and collaborate until we're in harmony. Yes. <laughs> that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I love that you went and spoke with the, the, the various spiritual teachers that my father is a journalist and a minister. Wow. Yes, but he's also a yogi. He also studies Kabbalah. So I grew up being exposed to, and my mother's Catholic, different traditions. Oh, that's so cool. You know, and that is just such a beautiful and perfect answer because when we have a curiosity about ourselves, as you said with fear, you know, kind of have a curiosity about ourselves, sometimes our feelings just want to be heard and expressed and paid attention to. And isn't that the isn't that the truth? I mean, isn't all, really what we want is just to be heard and to be seen, not yes. necessarily anything more. Yes, yes. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Would your dad go to the yoga class with us? Yes. Oh my gosh, he would love that, and I would love that as well. Yes. There you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joan, what are five things? that a spiritpreneur looking to grow her existing business and take it to the next level, what are five things that she should do? There you go. Let me see. Um, I might have to consult my notes. I have written some consult of these Consult your notes. I've been consulting conversation. Um, I don't even remember them offhand now. Let me see if that, if I can even, I'm going to have to consult myself here. Um, the five things I thought of. Um, it should be... They are, okay, all right, here, here they are. The first is things never work out as you initially envisioned. So, or more positively put, expect to be surprised and excited about the twists and turns um, that, will, that will come and know that you will need to rebound from disappointments. Expect to be surprised about the twists and turns and be excited about the rebound from disappointments. That's one. Yes. The two is it will take more time, money, and energy and effort than you ever imagined to get where you need to go. More time, money, heart, and energy than you ever imagined. <laughs> Are you agreeing with these? I am agreeing so wholeheartedly. <laughs> yes. Okay, All right. Be honest. Off time, your... money, and it, yep. <laughs> I might have left something out here too. Um, be honest with yourself about things as they develop, and is the business still working with you in your life? I think I, we talked about that briefly earlier, but, but be honest with yourself. There is no prize for pushing forward if it's not working for yourself. Your professional life needs to work for your life. Four, bring on people that fit your mission, your style, your values, and who have skills, gifts, and talents that complement rather than duplicate or replicate yourself. Bring on people that fit your mission, your style, your values, 
and have skills, gifts, and talents that complement rather than duplicate or replicate yourself. So many of us love to see yeah. a mirror a mirror of ourselves. She's just like me. Just like me. I've had that experience, and then you're in a room full of people who think just like, like you. you. And there's no new perspectives. Everybody right. does just what you do. Right. You want, people that, you want an organization that's full, that everybody does different things. And lastly, know that business is more than business. It is a template by which we grow our character, our spirit, and our way of being in the world. Mm. Beautiful. I, your book is going to be incredible. I can't wait to read it. Well, thank and you, and I'm looking forward to reading yours too, Abiola. Thank you. I'm going to send you a whole care package with my book, my goddess affirmation cards, and all kinds of goodies. But I have one more question for you, Joan. I define a sacred bombshell as a woman who loves, honors, and cherishes herself, mind, body, and spirit. How did you learn to love yourself? Well, I feel like you've answered that through the conversation. And most importantly, given this definition, Joan, what makes you a sacred bombshell? Well, um, <laughs> I don't know about sacred bombshell. <laughs> I don't know if I can you that are. Now. It's there. We see it, well, Goddess Joan. You know, hyperbolic, perhaps, but I can't really take that on fully. But I, I, I'll accept it from you. Thank you. Um, the self-love part was hard-earned really hard-earned. Um, you know, as I we've talked about quite extensively, you know, I was really misguided early. I felt um, self-love when I was rewarded from the outside, and so and it conversely, it would vanish. So um, I think that I have become um, very self-responsible. I realize that my happiness, my joy, my well-being um, falls on me. I don't look to you, 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 or anybody to bring me my well-being. That to me is sort of the, the nub of being, um, if you will, a, a sacred human being, is to um, be um, aware that you are responsible for what you create. And that makes me feel um, um, non-blaming, not judging, um, hopefully um, um, putting out love and compassion and care in the world it is a reflection of what I do for myself. Beautiful. Thank you, Joan. Thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Is there any way that people can support you or participate in your work? Do you want them to go to Jimboree? What would you like people to do? I would, to love, get them to just, I would love them to go to Jimboree classes, buy, buy things at the Jimboree store. There's also Janie and Jack, which is another one of the brands, Crazy 8. Go to Yoga Works, which is the which is the follow-on of the yoga studio. I sold Yoga Studio Yoga Works. There's like 35 yoga works both on the East Coast in New York, San Francisco, LA, um, Orange County, and of course come to my website, JoanBarnesSpeaks.com, and buy my book when it comes out. It'll be out soon. Talk is there a title? Is there a title um, yet? It's a working title, but until the publisher gives their final go-ahead, I'm really not able to say. Okay. Okay. Connect with me on Twitter, you know, at JoanBarnes um, underscore um, and let's stay connected. You know, let's. I've got a blog. It's a Joan Barnes speaks. You'll see the blog post there. I'd love to um, interact with you on the blog. Um, stay in touch with Abiola and me. We'll, we're going to do more together. I can tell yes. you that. Maybe we'll do a retreat together. Come on our yes. retreats. <laughs> 
Absolutely. This was a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much to Joan Barnes. And thank you for watching. And there is much more to come from Spiritpreneur School. I will see you at sacredbombshell.com. And for Joan and you, I will say namaste, the sacred bombshell in me, sees, adores, and accepts the sacred bombshell in you. <laughs> and namaste to you, Aviola. What a pleasure to be part of this. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thank you. Thank you.